Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Their newly released book, MIPS Manual 2020, is available on Amazon now. This book is great for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Molly Gelbert, who is the Associate Director of Government Affairs for the Medical Group Management Association, or MGMA. She's a fierce advocate for various healthcare issues and one of those people who reads policy for fun. We really enjoyed our conversation with her, so let's jump right in. We ask everybody kind of similar questions, but it really comes from the place of no like being working in healthcare for such a long time, you get a really good handle on your own piece, right? So it's like we know our piece of the health IT puzzle pretty darn well. However, Healthcare is complicated. It's big. There's so much to it and so many moving parts that we're kind of on a mission to get to know and get to understand other people's puzzle pieces that have to do with kind of completing the picture. Yeah. So could you please take us through a little bit your journey, what it is that you do in healthcare or health IT and what it has to do in your life ultimately? Yeah, so I work in healthcare policy and I work for the Medical Group Management Association or MGMA, which is a professional trade association that represents medical group managers and executives. So we like to think of it as the business of medicine. And so I work in the government affairs office where we advocate on behalf of these professionals. And so in that capacity, I work on a variety of different issues. And that involves either like direct lobbying in front of Congress or comment letter writing to administrations. And because the healthcare industry is so regulated, you know, and it's also regulated to a, a minute detail. A lot of that is in regulations. I have a background in law. I'm an attorney by education. I've never really practiced, but I think my law degree has helped in the policy sphere in allowing me to kind of get into the details and the nitty gritty of it. So I enjoy the policy work in healthcare. And instead of 
let's say, advising a client on a specific legal issue, I get to go and help advise a lawmaker about how to change the law that a lawyer might advise on. So, you know, in healthcare, I, I think there's there's a lot of changes right now. We have the whole value-based movement and whatnot, and that's some of the issues that that medical group practices are dealing with. And so that's been a space where we've been engaging in, in policymaking and, and trying to influence it to the, the betterment of our members. So how did you come to work for MGMA? Did you just come out of school and you know about healthcare and somebody says, do you want to come work here and basically represent our membership in D.C.? What did that look like? So my first job out of law school was at the Social Security Administration. And it's actually a, a different sort of uh, healthcare sphere, but I worked on disability applications. So we would look at appeals. So you have a claimant who is applying for disability, and we would look at the medical record, the underlying record, and determine whether or not a judge's decision was accurate, either awarding or denying disability. So a lot of medical record review, which was interesting because you know, we were all trained as lawyers, but yet we're like looking at these clinical notes, and, and I always thought it would probably be better you know, fit for a nurse or, or something like that. So, but I, I was working there and then wanted to kind of get out of the government work and, and move to the policy side where things move a little faster. So I thought policy and government affairs would be more for me than say litigation. So that's how I arrived at MGMA. So you're done with law school. You're looking at these clinical records, trying to decide if somebody does or doesn't get this benefit. Do you have to do research then when you're looking into these records? And how did you tell our listeners, how did you get the records? So, you know, what's funny is that there's all this conversation around, you know, interoperability and getting all of a patient's records so that you have a longitudinal record of their care. And, you know, you go to a nephrologist and then they don't have the endocrinologist notes and, you know, they're not aware of what care is happening. Well, in the disability office, because it's the attorney that's representing the claimant, gets all the records and gives them all to us. And so we have all of these care providers' records in one database that they, they've made these files, essentially. So this is like PDF for the people that are listening, right? Yes. You have electronic documents scanned yeah. to you. Mm-hmm. Sorry, please go on. Yeah, so it's a, it's a PDF, you know, searchable PDF. And so I, I remember looking, I mean, particularly with pain management notes, you see a, a neurologist or a pain manager and they're talking about, we think this, this patient might be doctor shopping or we're not sure if they're getting opioids from a different provider. We don't know if they're going to their physical therapy appointments. And I'm looking at all of the records and I, you know, can see, okay, they went to two physical therapy appointments, they stopped going, you know, maybe they're going to different clinics and the doctors don't have these notes. And, you know, I just remember thinking, what is wrong here that that we have them in the disability office and the doctors aren't able to see them? So, you know, it's like, well, whatever is working in the Social Security office, maybe we should bring outside into the medical office. So, you know, and I think it has to do with just the fact that it, there's a an advocate on behalf of the claimant that's gathering all that information. So they're giving subpoenas or, or requests to every office. And so they have the patient write down everything. Mm-hmm. So I guess in theory, the patient could bring all their records to each provider, but I don't think that happens. But when you have the attorney doing it, you know, it, you do get all the information. So yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of an interesting conundrum, I guess. What do you 
So going back to now and some of the policy that you've been working on, what are some of the just highlights of maybe the recent past of what have you gone to the Hill to go to bat for? What are you advocating for MGMA members? Sure. So I think a lot of the conversation right now has been around reducing regulatory burden because it is such a tightly regulated area. And so, you know, reducing areas where there are excessive administrative requirements that are maybe outdated or are no longer in line with clinical standards. And so some of the areas that are particular pain points for MGMA members, which guides what I do on a day-to-day basis, is around prior authorization requirements, quality reporting, compliance, audits, documentation requirements, things like that, that guides really all that we do. And so it's a lot of different areas but they all intersect around this overall goal of reducing burden. So I imagine that a lot of the members could potentially add their voice to that. Are there ways that you either appreciate membership's feedback or would like more of it to be able to help guide you a little bit better with sort of the needs of what they're going through on a database basis? How would they get involved if they wanted to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great question because that is really what one informs our advocacy efforts to know what issues do we need to focus on? What should we be doing on behalf of our members? But also once we have that direction, it really fills in the details because we have all of those anecdotes from members who are doing the day-to-day practical work and we can use that you know, to strengthen our message, our overall, you know, call to action, and also to, you know, help provide the details about what we need to change, what's working, what's not. And so I'll hear from members when I go out and speak at conferences like the MGMA National Conference or a state conference, and just having face-to-face interactions with members, their questions are also informative. And then also just email. I have couple dozen members that I email with regularly and they'll say, I need some help on this quality measure or, you know, I'm having this issue in my office. And that even just that sort of question rather than direct feedback is informative for us. And so I really, a lot of, a lot of feedback comes in through emails or face-to-face or phone calls, things like that. We also have communities where members talk to one another, like a, you know, chat room almost. And so we learn a lot through that. They post questions to us. So there's a lot of ways that, that members can interact with us. And it certainly is critical to, to our day-to-day work. In representing the larger, being the larger voice of the membership as the organization MGMA, what are some of the things that you guys feel like you've been, had the most impact with or had kind of maybe some of your biggest wins? Sure. So I think because we are in the business side of medicine, that our members really are dealing with the administrative side of stuff, the claims processing and things like that. And so recently we got a bill introduced into Congress that would put restrictions around prior authorization use for Medicare Advantage plans. And our office helped draft some of the technical details of the bill and has really been at the forefront of advocating for that. And while you know physicians obviously realize the burden of prior authorization because they have to go through and maybe provide clinical support or substantiation for a decision, but it's the administrators that are pushing like the clicks to get the prior authorization through. So I think that's an area where we've had 
more of a leadership role and you know really just some of those more administrative issues. Have you ever been in a situation where MGMA has been the voice for change or maybe some comment feedback specific to a larger bill that would impact your members and maybe the ruling or the final draft or the final policy that comes down, excuse me, is not in line with a sentiment you are hoping or a direction they might not go or what your members might not like. How do you handle some of the scrutiny? Because I know on our side, we work in the regulatory space and value-based care and MIPS and APMs. And it's kind of like, don't shoot the messenger guys, right? Yeah. And But you're at the forefront of people that are hoping to control that message or that narrative or that regulation that comes down. What do you do when things don't go your way, so to speak. It's certainly something that we deal with, especially I think the first issue that comes to mind is with quality reporting because we'll put out our message and we'll say, we are working on reducing quality reporting burdens. We're working on having it more clinically aligned and more closely integrated with with your day-to-day clinical work. And then when you keep saying that over and over again and nothing's improved, you feel a little bit like, well, what are you doing then? And I think that that is difficult for sure, but it's small improvements. I mean, you're not going to make significant changes overnight. And so it's just chipping away at it and continually saying the same message and being able to bring our members' voices up and, and elevate that to the administration if it's quality reporting. And so continuing to work on it and try different angles. And so eventually I think you do see improvements, but it just takes time. I do think that can be difficult sometimes in just expressing that it's not going to happen overnight. Being on the value-based care journey, we definitely feel that it is not, it's not an overnight thing. Nothing, uh, none of the goals are going to happen even within a year, which is in, when you understand the bigger picture of what they're trying to do, to me, it makes sense that they are after incremental change and the long-term plan is really what we're after. But it's so hard sometimes to keep that in mind when you're dealing with the consequences that are short-term and your, you know, things that are difficult in today and in my medical practice right now. And so And I think with value-based care too, it's like this is unprecedented. We're going through uncharted waters. And so maybe something doesn't work. Maybe you think that these measures or this type of payment model is the answer. And then you look at results and studies and, and you realize that it's not. And so I think that that's also something that has to be factored in is just that we're sort of in this testing phase. And with that, there's just kind of an unprecedented number of models and options and things to choose from. So I think if you look back from kind of this one size fits all quality solution, one code on one claim to avoid a penalty, right, to where we are now and the options that practices have, There are so many, so it's also a lot to keep up with and to understand where you want to put your effort for those possible incentive dollars or to be able to remain prosperous and to survive and thrive in this marketplace. So it's definitely a balance for sure. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com is a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, 
So we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on Patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. Is there anything you've heard or is there anything for you personally where maybe as a consumer of healthcare and kind of going from law into this space that you see both on the business side that it was maybe like an eye-opener for you as a consumer or thinking back or long, I don't know, maybe loved ones or, you know, friends and family that you look at kind of how the operation side has worked in the background and you're connecting dots to what you do in policy today and maybe something you are frustrated with or have the opportunity to change. Do you have any personal stories where all of these worlds of law, being a consumer, but advocating for the change of all these practices has kind of collided? I think something I've been realizing recently is the benefits of being part of a as a personal consumer, seeing a physician or a care provider that's in a network like a patient-centered medical home or an accountable care organization where there's some accountability to the patient and just the benefits of seeking out a primary care provider that's in one of those networks. Because I think that there there's clinical and, and care efforts in place in those types of models that as a patient, I would love to have having a care coordinator follow up with you with test results or something like that. I mean, I've seen my PCP and I, you know, log into my portal and I look at test results and nobody says anything. I'm like, well, my cholesterol is high. I'd like to know what I can do to reduce it, but nobody's following up with me. And so then I think about what I hear about for, with an ACO or something and just the efforts that go on behind the scenes. And I think, you know, well, next time I look for new providers, I'm going to look at that and do some research. And I certainly wouldn't have been aware of any of that if I wasn't in this current role. So it's it's changed how I view my own care for sure. All right. So that lends us to going to our next question. And this is a, I want you to choose your weapon of choice, but it's a weapon of peace. So <laughs> <laughs> a weapon of peace. Give her the choices. So Give her the choices. Peace, you can have a magic wand. A genie in a bottle, snap of your finger. So if you could solve any problem in healthcare with your unicorn hat, without using any money, time, resources, not having any issues, like uh, well, all the normal barriers that you're like, oh, I would be able to solve this if only, all of that goes away. What problem would you solve and why? So you could tell me if this counts or not, if I can't have any money or resources. <laughs> no, 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 the, the magical have- unicorn hat brought all of these things to your disposal. So it's there are no constraints, oh, no barriers. Right. Okay. You can have all the money, all the time, all the resources. Unlimited. Okay, blank yes. check. Yes. So I think to the point about what I learned being in health policy, I think increasing health literacy and knowledge within the patient population would go a very long way in solving a lot of problems. And by that, I mean health literacy in the clinical and financial field. I think having informed consumers of clinical information is very important. Knowing that you have a patient portal that you can log into to download your records could help patients understand their conditions and and monitor their own health and just be more engaged consumers. And then I think on the financial side, 
And this is where I think there needs to be a lot of help from other other entities is education around what key terms mean with health coverage, even as simple as cost sharing elements. What is a premium versus a deductible versus a copay? And how does that impact out of pocket expenses for a patient? Because, you know, there's a lot of discussion now in the media about high premiums. But then on the flip side, well, what is their deductible then? Maybe they have a high premium, but a very low deductible. And so they're getting a lot of their care paid for faster. Or you have low premiums and you have a very high deductible. And then, you know, what is your health insurance plan doing for you? And so I'd like to see more education around those elements and hopefully some standardization so that it's easier to educate. So it means the same thing across different plans. And I think that that could help reduce costs if patients are more informed about that. And even making healthcare decisions, like if I go to the ER, I'm gonna pay a facility fee and that's gonna drive up costs for me and for everybody. But if I wait and go to even urgent care, might be higher than if I go to a PCP, but it's lower than an ER. But I don't think patients are aware of those site of service differentials and certainly not about you know the over how that impacts overall spending. And so I think just even though those basic education efforts could go a long way and improving a lot, you know, just both for individual and population health. But of course, you have to have consumers that want to consume information. And I think that's a barrier as well as patients have to want to, to learn about all of this. Well, I think you in the role you're in speaks to just the complex nature of what's required to do this. Joy and I have had this conversation many times. You know, you have consumers that don't even know that what an EOB stands for, that that in and of itself is not a bill when it comes to the mail. So they're quickly on the phone to those administrators who are hoping to reduce burden in their day so they can focus on operations, their clinicians' needs, and ultimately the patients themselves. And so there's healthcare as the consumers know it, but then there's healthcare as we all know it and all of the nuances, all of the business stuff in the background. And so how do you translate that? How do you translate, you know, what balance billing is, where that's allowed, where it's not allowed, and all of the rules for adjustments and these sorts of things, contractual rates. And there is such a gap, such a deficit in consumer understanding. I know we gave you the magical hat. Well, who are some of these other entities or stakeholders that you think could be participating parties to that conversation to help do that? I think it really should be everyone. I think that from the plan perspective, they're often in the best position because they have all of the patient's information about that specific plan and what costs count for deductible, what don't. And because it is so different across different plans and different payers, that I think that they are probably in the best position. But then there's also this, do you trust that entity to be giving objective information? Is it easy to understand? Then do you need a translator then to kind of cut through like, you know, this like payer speak and whatnot and and read through their message because they're going to be advocating for themselves, you know, even in their literature. So then I think that physician practices can help too. But one thing we hear from MGMA members is that when physicians are treating patients, they do it in a payer agnostic way. So they're not thinking, here comes United Plan A 
and they don't know that. So it's hard for them to provide specific education. And because the terminology is so different mm-hmm. and the technical details are so different across plans, it can only go so far. Well, yeah. And even when they prescribe a drug and the formulary doesn't work and then the poor patient goes to the pharmacy and then the big store pharmacist, excuse me, is coming back to them and is like, hey, Dr. ABC, this drug isn't covered. It's $132 and Mrs. Smith doesn't have that. What can we do instead? And so it's kind of this big vicious loop. Honestly, where I thought consumer education might begin to become more differentiated is the high deductible health plans came on the market and have just become more and more pervasive in the marketplace. I thought for sure with consumers becoming one of the like Uber payers, if you will, one of the biggest payers in the marketplace, I thought for sure the employers, the plans, some of these people have to help translate some of those complexities, dilute it down and help you understand what's going on so that, you know, instead of $400 for an earache for my daughter, I can go to the urgent care and maybe it's $180 and I've made a better decision. The outcome is no different. We still have amoxicillin, right? Whatever the case might be. And that I would better understand that for myself and my family because I was more responsible for that component of the benefit. But I think that the market is changing so much. You've got a lot of people uninsured or underinsured. I was listening to one of those bill reviews recently, and it was definitely somebody who was a millennial and she just had her first like big girl job and she went to go get a surgery. (laughs) And she honestly was like, I'm insured. So it's going to be fine. Like just the idea, not even to the level that you're talking about of understanding the different layers and language in it, but just insured versus not insured. She said, I'm covered. I got the plastic card in my wallet. Yeah. I'm good. And there are many people that are at that level of literacy. They're like, okay, we're going to need some help here. <laughs> and how, how can they be expected to, to know that? If, I mean, you Google, but then it's like, it's also misleading and confusing. And yeah, I mean, it's very hard to then get that information and, and develop even that baseline of understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the practice, really, I, I feel like, unfortunately, I feel like sometimes the doctors in the middle get a bad rap and that consumers confuse the physician for their insurance or that it's their fault it doesn't work. And for anyone out there listening, that's not the way it works. They're being squeezed in the middle. As consumers, our premiums go up, our deductibles go up, rarely are they ever going down. And then you have the payers coming back to that physician going, hey, I can't give you this much of my fee schedule. It's contract time. They're not trying to offer these physicians more money. It's significantly less. And their overhead, their costs are going up. And they're being squeezed just as hard as any of us. I completely agree. And I think that a lot of times that the group practice does get faulted for those costs because they're the Mm front-facing entity. And then you have big payer and you don't know anything about them. You don't ever see them. So you don't think, oh, I have a junk plan. And that's why I you know, have to spend $100 at the, you know, at office, the billing office of my group practice. So then it becomes their fault. And then the patient's upset with their provider. And then that hurts the patient provider relationship. Mm -hmm. But I completely agree. I think that's, that's a big problem. And I don't know how that necessarily gets fixed and just sort of directing that, that anxiety or anger about the costs somewhere else. But I I do think that's a problem. Yeah. And I think to your point, if you're going to talk about transparency and all these other things in the marketplace, we can't do it without enough consumer education to have that color and context for what it is. And we're just simply not there, to Joy's point about the girl with the card in her wallet who thinks she's fine. I'm insured. 
Yeah. I know. Nothing. I don't owe anything. (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. I'm covered, right? I got it. Buy now, pay later. Just like Visa. Credit card. Yeah. Yeah. Master the possibilities. (laughs) So Molly, healthcare is a big complex place, as we mentioned in the beginning. And so to kind of help begin to bring us full circle, what do you read to keep up? What do you listen to? Or what do you read to disconnect or maybe something that's impacted you personally or professionally that you love? Tell people what you're reading or listening to. Sure. So because... Well, you know, I say this, things in Washington don't really move fast, but sometimes they do in the sense that there's all these big announcements that come out and it's like you wait, 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 and then you go, go, go. And so it's when something happens, then, you know, you have to basically know right away. I read a lot of newsletters that come in through my email inbox. So some of the newsletters that I really like are Politico. I think that it's easy to digest. They're very quick. I think they're accurate. They're good. I also use CQ Health. I think it's a subscription only. And Inside Health Policy, I really like those for daily reading. I think I read those three things every single day. In terms of podcasts, I really like What the Health. Me too. Mm-hmm. I love them. Joy's got that. That's on yeah. her top. Yes, I love them. I like how wonky they get. And I like that they cover a lot of different topics. You know, you'll hear about health IT specific one day, and then you hear about a Medicare executive order the next time. Mm -hmm. And I like that they do their questions that they ask listeners to write in questions and they answer them. So really, aside from newsletters and the, you know, select podcast sometimes and I'm definitely going to start listening to this one now it's fun (laughs) you should also know if you like the Politico newsletter they have a women rule podcast and it's and they interview politicians women politicians just about well and boss ladies for the most part just about what's going on in in the government and policy and I think you'd probably it'd be right up your alley yeah definitely I'll add that one to my list but yeah I mean that's that's really where what I'm reading. I also, I mean, there's a lot of other newsletters that I get that I also read. I like Axios and Bloomberg I also use. So yeah, I think it, it's important to have a variety. Okay. Sometimes you pick up on on one thing in, in one and it's not in another newsletter. So I don't have a lot of time. Well, I don't have a lot of energy to expend on health reading for fun. So <laughs> really all of my health-related reading has is really, you know, it just work related. I'm not doing any extracurricular healthcare reading. (laughs) (laughs) So Molly, if people want to find you, connect with you, learn more about what you're doing at MGMA, what are your socials? What are your handles? How can people find you? I am on LinkedIn, Molly Gelbert, and my Twitter handle is Molly Gel, M-O-L-L-I-E-G-E-L. And those are my social media offerings. I don't have a Facebook, so. Good for you. (laughs) Woman of the future. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you guys very much. It was wonderful to meet you. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.